Well, good morning. It's nice to be with you again and to have this opportunity to continue to speak from God's Word. Um, it has been my privilege to be with you this weekend and to share from the Word of God. And I also appreciate the choice of songs, hymns for this morning. If you would open your Bibles, we will... Uh, our key passage uh, for the weekend has been 1 John 1, 5 uh, through 2, 6. Um, however, I have exercised great liberty uh, in going to all parts of Scripture the last uh, three sessions. Um, today, I would like to kind of work through this passage with you. Um, I will go to a few others, but not very many. Uh, so if you will turn to 1 John chapter 1, let's read uh, the portion for this morning. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. In him truly, sorry, uh, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As we read through it, as you have heard it read through and you have been reading, you realize that there is a strong theme that comes forth in these passages, in these statements. Uh, it's sort of inescapable. It comes to us um, uh, at the beginning and at the end um, that a relationship with the living and true God through faith in Christ leads to a life that is transformed by His grace. Right? A relationship with the living God through faith in Christ leads to a life that is transformed. It seems to be the thrust of what this is saying. Coming to Christ leads to change. And we should welcome that change. 
And that change is a good thing for us. And so God seeks to impart to us his life. And this life is not merely uh, a pass to heaven uh, in a future day, but it's also really entrance into the life of God for the present, that your present experience is transformed. It really becomes sharing in the life of God. Our section today begins, uh, begins with It's not beginning. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, begins with this statement. Um, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. <clears throat> God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Now, this is where um, we recognize that the Bible uses language in a very normal way, like people would. Uh, it includes figures of speech. Not everything in the Bible is to be taken literally meaning. The speakers, the voices in the Bible also have full recourse to all of the ways in which we use language. One of those is the use of metaphors, right? So this is not saying that the material world is God or the light in space and here is God. It's not a statement of pantheism that the universe is God. Uh, it is a metaphor because we know if you read and the authors of the New Testament are totally steeped in the old and, and the Spirit of God is speaking through them. Uh, it is God who is a person who exists without beginning, who in the beginning of the universe creates light by saying, let there be light, right? So light is something he created. He is not the, the energy that floats through the universe in the form of Shall we say electromagnetic radiation? So it's a metaphor that God is light in contrast to darkness in a qualitative way that we cannot relate to. It's not necessarily particularly a Hebrew idiom. It's universally recognized. Light is good. It's good. We see things. We can navigate properly uh, in the light. We can see things clearly. Darkness obscures things. And there are hidden works of darkness. Thieves go out at night. You don't know what is crawling there in the darkness. And God is light in the sense that the living and true God is morally perfect. And you know that's actually a very profound statement because that is not the supposition of all people who believe in gods. Uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, Greek or any other mythology? I would say some of you are, right? What do you think about the gods of the Greeks? or any of the Indo-European people, or the Mesopotamians, or the Canaanites. Well, they are, they are just fallen, like fallen, immoral people, just power jazzed up a little bit. So the, 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 the king of Olympus, of the Olympian gods on Mount Olympus in Greece, the, the Greek pantheon, well, he is a rapist and murderer and everything else. He, so if you look at the, the theogonies of, of different cultures, of, of polytheism, the gods, they began by infanticide and, or, you know, filicide and patricide, killing children, killing parents, and killing their brothers and sisters. They are not good. And the, all of the pictures of gods in other religions, they are powerful more than people, but they are not good. So in fact, even early on, 
uh, among the Greeks, there was criticism about the picture of the gods that they got through their mythology. These are not gods. And in fact, the Bible is unique in this regard. Totally, totally unique. You cannot find a God in any book like the God of the Bible. All 66 books from Genesis to Revelation over the uh, 2,000 some years, uh, so let me see, 1,400 plus 100, 1,500 years over which was written by many hands because the same voice of God truthfully speaks to us through the pages of Scripture. And it reveals to us a God that we could not invent. He is not like us. He's totally perfect. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. He is morally perfect. In fact, He provides us the standard, the criterion for assessing, for measuring what right is and what perfection is. So God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. And my slides are still uncooperative today. Okay. <clears throat> And um, the living and true God, therefore, is not a product of human imagination. Uh, one of the things that is done in sort of secular scholarship, even of the study of the Bible, you know, there are secular people who study the Bible. <laughs> it's not just the people who believe in the Bible who study the Bible. There are people who don't believe in anything who still like to study the Bible, except they have their own working assumptions. And they th think this is just like any other book. Uh, and so they are hard-pressed often to find how did these people invent and come up with these things. And often the Bible is spoken of as sort of uh, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew literature. And to some uh, degree that is correct, but it's really not a product of the imagination of the Hebrews of the people of the Bible. The God of the Bible is morally perfect. Moral perfection is defined in reference to him. A second uh, issue in this connection is that we also tend to think that to be a human uh, requires us to be sinful. Well, we have a well-known saying, to err is human, right? But to forgive is divine. That's true as far as it goes, because none of us has ever met in our lifetime a human who did not err. No matter how much we love our own parents, we know that they are people with faults. Or our children, certainly we know that they are people with faults. And our friends, siblings, they're all people with faults. It just turns out that the, the human world as it exists today is a fallen human world. But it's not the definition of being human because our first parents, when they were created, they were not with fault. They were not depraved. They were not in bondage to sin. And our Lord Jesus, who came into our midst and took upon himself our form, we, we considered the, the passage in Hebrews as, that says, since children partook, partook of flesh and blood, he himself shared in the same. Right? He became like us. He was fully human, truly human, who lived his life in real, actual obedience to the will of the Heavenly Father, but he was faultless. So to be a human, it's not a corollary that we must be sinful, I would say, anymore. And we certainly, in eternity, we will be human still. We are not going to turn into angels, believe me. We will, in eternity, be human. We'll be glorified humans, 
by the grace and power of God, but we will be sinlessly perfect. That's the hope to which we are moving. So humanity can be sinlessly perfect, right? So we ought not to uh, respond to the exhortations uh, in the passage here saying, oh, that's impossible. And it's sort of the reaction we get. Let's see what the Lord wants us to know and to think and consider in the light of His grace in our lives. So the, the passage says, God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. And if somehow... Um, um, Things have gone farther than I, I wanted. Um, somehow it does not seem to be okay. I think I'll cancel that. Yeah, or it's a battery is not good. Um, so then when we move on, it says, um, if... God is light, in Him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him, if we say if we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So God is light, He's morally perfect, and in Him there's no imperfection, there's no sin, no corruption, nothing that is evil in Him. And you and I, if you have come into a relationship with the living God and you say, yes, I am related to God. And then I still live like the devil. Then scripture tells me that I'm still, I am, I am lying and I am not practicing the truth. Thank you. So, um... If we walk in the light, in verse 5, verse 6, uh, I'm moving on, verse 7, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So first point I would like to consider is that having um, launched us into this thought that God is light, in him is no darkness. If I say I have fellowship with him, and you know, the last three sessions, Saturday and on Friday night, we talked about the meaning of fellowship. What is it to have fellowship with God? It is sharing at a deep level. It's a fundamental relationship that manifests in a changed conduct for us. So if we say we have a real vital relationship with him, and if we are still living under the bondage of sin, scripture says that we are lying and the truth is not in us, and then here it adds this part. It adds this part. It says, And the blood of Jesus' his Son, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or at the end of verse 7, right? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. So I, I want to... Um, it's been a little... Uh, hard getting to what I just want to tell you now, but we are there. So um, why does it say 
After saying, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I want to talk to you and point out that for those who have come to know God, there are two kinds of righteousness to reckon with. Two kinds of righteousness. God expects those who know him to live out a right conduct. But he does not want us to deny that now as we are constituted, deep in our being there is something wrong. There is something wrong. That is, it is possible through a knowledge of God to live righteously. And even so, you can say there are people who don't know God who seem to live kind of upright moral lives. Not every unbeliever is a drunkard. Not every unbeliever is sexually immoral. And again, this kind of varies by culture. Not every unbeliever is, is a professional thief. Not Every unbeliever is a pathological liar, right? You know, there are such people who seem helpless in, 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 in regard to not telling the truth. So there seems to be, even the Bible seems to acknowledge uh, two kinds of righteousness. And so I would like to, to uh, bring this up. And coming to know God should change our lives. Otherwise, God would not give his people instructions for conduct. And we ourselves would not be exhorted to live a certain way. So let's begin with uh, uh, our common ancestor, Noah. Right? We all go back to him. Um, our common ancestor, Noah, in Genesis 6, says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That sounds like kind of perfect. Right? Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That, those, that sounds very good. But remember, look at the first sentence, though. It says, Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not someone who by himself merited something. It seems like he still needed divine favor. And we know that he was not altogether morally perfect. Right? He, he, there was something that happened after the flood, so even the flood did not make him perfect. After he came through the flood, uh, there was a lapse on his part that we, we know. So it speaks of somebody being righteous in their conduct, even blameless, that you cannot point him saying, look at that guy. He's, he's a wicked man. No, he was not. They, he had a good reputation, and he feared God. And it says he walked with God. So there is a standard of righteousness, but it says still Noah needed grace. He found favor. His being rescued from the judgment that came upon the entire world of his day was the grace and the mercy and the favor of God. Let me take you to another passage. It is in, it's in, uh, in Psalm 24. Uh, it's, a, it's a favorite of mine. Uh, it begins by saying, uh, the, the earth is the Lord and all that it contains in the world and those who dwell in it. He has founded upon the, 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 the rivers, um, established on the, on the seas. And then, 
having talked about the, the sovereignty of God who created all things, the psalmist asks the question, hey, who can stand before God? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord, this, the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, but he's speaking about the presence of the Lord. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy, press, holy place? Who? Somebody who has clean hands and a pure heart. But clean hands are easier than a pure heart. Somebody whose conduct is good, whose heart is right, who does not lift up his soul to vanities, literally, things which are worthless. That's sort of deep and penetrating. And does not swear deceitfully his interpersonal conduct is right. He's not a deceiver. He's not a rip-off artist of some kind to any level. Honest dealings, a person of integrity. His dealings are just. Well, that's good, right? He's clean hands, pure heart. Doesn't He's not caught up with vain things of this life uh, or false gods. He doesn't swear deceitfully. And then it says, this one will receive a blessing from the Lord. That's good. What's he going to get? What's he going to get? And or even righteousness from the God of his salvation. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought this guy was already righteous. Uh, he is able to come into the presence of the Lord. He has clean hands, a pure heart. Does not swear deceitfully. He does not lift his heart up to vanities. But he gets righteousness as a blessing from the Lord. It means that no matter how well by grace we strive, there is something that is fundamentally wrong with us that needs to be taken away and can only be done by God. You know, Abraham, who is really the model for all believers, is, is a good man. In fact, there is a verse in Genesis that says, Abraham kept all of the, the laws and statutes and, and testimonies and commandments of the Lord. Even before, not the full set given through Moses, whatever was given to him, he obeyed. And here's a great example. God said, Abraham, get up and go to the land that I'm going to show you. He didn't even tell him where. And he got up and went. Right? And then um, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. He said, thank you, Lord. And he waited. A year went by. Five years went by. Ten years went by. Nothing happened. And he and his wife, Sarah, said, well, uh, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Um, and uh, so why don't you take my handmaid, uh, Hagar, and have a child, and it'll be counted as mine. And Abraham, like a good husband like me, obeyed his wife, you know. Um, and, um, and, and later, he, God appears to him and said, uh, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, um, and I'm going to give you an offspring. He said, no, don't bother God. I took care of it. Ishmael is good enough. He said, no, that's not what I promised. That's not what I promised. I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. And you know, the point about Abraham is that he waited another 10 years plus. He, God called him when he was around 75. He gets his promised son a quarter century later. And this man still trusted God. And when this son was to be offered up as an offering and in whom all his hopes were, without hesitation, he decided to obey God. But you know, how did this man 
get any standing before God? That's Genesis 15, 6 for you. God spoke to Abraham and Moses says, Abraham believed God and God considered that righteousness for him. There's a lot of righteousness evident in the life of Abraham, but there was in ourselves, no matter how good our practice, conduct, we strive to be and achieve to be, there's still sin and moral defect in us. And apart from the grace of God, we don't have a standing. Grace is given or righteousness is given by our creator to sinners as a gift on condition of faith. We trust in God and God puts righteousness to our account. And that is the only sufficient level of righteousness to be in eternal relationship with God. It does not mean that other levels of righteousness are not possible. You cannot live in an upright and moral way. But everyone, so in fact, this is uh, the next uh, passage is illustrative of this. In Matthew uh, 5.20, our Lord says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, do you know who the scribes and Pharisees were? They were the strictest people in first century Israelite society. They, in fact, created more rules than existed in the law of Moses, that they would not break them by any, by any odd chance at all. So the, the whole, the Mishnah is really a later collection of the traditions of the Pharisees that developed over this period of time and probably elaborated during the first century, written down around the end of the second, or the beginning of the third century AD. So in all of these, the, so the Mishnah uh, creates a lot more rules than is even given to them in the law of Moses. So they were trying very hard not to break any of God's commandments. In fact, they had issues with the Lord Jesus. They thought he broke the Sabbath commandment. And our Lord has to really correct them on this point. However, look at that. It says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here the issue is that Despite all our striving and working to be right, there's a fundamental issue that we ought to recognize that we are sinners. We are sinners. And a statement of our Lord to the Pharisees, in fact, clarifies this. They come to him with a complaint or a charge. Your disciples, you know, um, they, they are in the, in the public sphere interacting with people and then before they eat, they don't wash their hands and they are not talking about hygiene and there was no COVID in those days. Uh, they are not talking about hygiene, they are talking about ritual purity. And what does the Lord Jesus answer? He doesn't say, no, that's all right. Maybe they didn't touch anybody who was defiled. He says, you really don't understand what the true thing is that makes you unclean. It's not what goes in that really makes you unclean. But what comes out of you, out of your heart, out of the heart comes oh, a whole bunch of defiling things, adulteries, fornication, murders. These things, he says, come from our heart. We have a fundamental problem. We have a fundamental problem that we inherited from our first parents when they disobeyed God and they became corrupt. God created man in his image 
But when you look at Genesis chapter 5, when it speaks of the genealogy of Seth, Adam begot a child in his image and likeness, which is now fallen. This is our problem. Our own efforts will not earn us a standing with God. And the only availing level of righteousness to have enduring permanent relationship with God is to be gifted, to be given, to be imputed, to be put, to have perfect righteousness put into our, our account, which God does when we turn to Him in faith. And this has been always true ever since the fall. No one ever earned their way to salvation. No one ever was righteous enough by their own conduct to be accepted by God fully. God wants people to be righteous. He wants us to live uprightly. We should never think that, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. But the only availing standard is perfection, and that perfection is only possible through that being put to our account by God. And when He does that, it is thorough. It is total. This is what David says in Psalm 32. How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It belongs to me, but he has taken it out of my ledger, put it into the ledger of Christ who paid for it. And the next, next sentence, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. When God justifies me, it is perfect, it is thorough, it is it's total. I have a standing because of the grace of God where I am now seen as sinlessly perfect because all my guilt has been taken away and the perfection of the Son of God has been put to my account. And you say, how did that happen? I simply accepted the offer of God that he makes in the gospel through Christ. God offers us salvation, forgiveness in the person of his son who came, became like us, actually lived a life here on earth in total obedience to the will of the Father. He was sinlessly perfect. He could challenge people saying, which one of you convicts me of sin? And no one could answer him. And even, even a pagan Roman governor, after having heard every accusation against him, he says, I find no fault in him. And that merely says that he was not of a criminal nature. But the Lord's own challenge to the Pharisees and others who challenged them testified to the fact that they could not find anything wrong with him. And we have the testimony of God. When our Lord began his public ministry, God spoke from heaven. And again, during the public ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have a perfect substitute in the person of the Lord Jesus. He came into our world to become our Savior. And our salvation is only possible through Him. So it is possible to come into a relationship with God, and God invites us into this relationship. It is a fellowship with God. It's a real amazing sharing in the life of God. And it is made possible because the blood of Christ, Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So God is inviting you 
to this today if you have never come to him. What God offers us, God is, is you know, we began with God is light. Uh, there's no darkness at all in him. God is not only morally perfect in terms of purity, righteousness, holiness, but God is also infinitely kind and infinitely merciful. Uh, we, will not, we will not plumb the depths of the grace and goodness of God given any length of time. Some of the statements I, I find in the New Testament about our Lord's grace to us is just beyond comprehension. For example, the Lord Jesus says in one of the letters to the seven churches, to him who overcomes, says, I will grant him to sit on my throne just as the Father has granted me to sit on his. So the Lord is offering to every believer really an eternity where our life is really joined to him and our destiny is tied to him. It is a, it's a life uh, and, and blessing where it was, why he would grant us this is beyond our imagination. However, having been confronted with the truth and reality of our sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sometimes, you know, we think sin is a bad word. Well, use any other word. I'll give you some alternate words. Transgression, <laughs> breaking God's perfect standard, a violation of God's commandments, uh, being contrary in my character to the perfection that is in God. We ought not to decide for ourselves what is requisite for the perfect, infinite God. If we say we have no sin, and we all, we all do, I mean, we know it, right? Nobody had to teach me to lie. It came to me naturally. Nobody had to teach me to be selfish. You have to be taught to be selfless. And even that, you know, to some degree is possible. Yeah, I remember my older two children, our daughters, they're two years apart. And one day, all of a sudden, Sarah, who's older, was upset. Um, I said, what's wrong? She said, well, Elizabeth, she has got that. And she had, the little sister had gotten something, and she was not given the same thing. I said, isn't that wonderful that your sister has that? And she started paying attention. And actually, that changed her from that moment. And they have been the thickest of friends ever since. Uh, Oh, yeah, I say that's a different way to look at it. I should be happy that my sister has this thing or toy or clothing or whatever it was that she hadn't. Now, so to some degree, we can, by God's grace, be taught to think, but our natural instincts are selfish, are self-centered. And we recognize that we really don't have control even on, over our own souls. Um, I don't know. I Don't show me hands, but... How many people have made New Year's resolutions, right? We, we make those resolutions with the best of intentions, but we find that, no, my soul is not under my control. And one of the things that happens to a believer when a person comes to Christ by receiving the gospel, 
of salvation is that God does something in our soul. He breaks the bondage of sin. It still takes a lot of yielding, understanding, commitment for this to be worked out. But the standing of a believer in Christ is that your, your soul is no longer under the bondage of sin. Romans chapter 6, if you wonder if what I'm saying is correct. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here's the thing to do. If your sins have never been forgiven, if you have never come to Christ, if you have never come to Christ, what he's asking you to do is to come and acknowledge that you have sinned, you are a sinner, you fall short of God's perfect standard, you need forgiveness and acceptance, and you are willing. You want to receive the free offer of salvation through Christ who took our sin upon him and paid for it in full and triumphed over death to bring us everlasting life. If we confess our sins, God is faithful. It is part of the character of God. He has offered salvation. And if we acknowledge our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you say, if you persist and say, no, I haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's also applicable, actually, to believers. Sometimes we fall into sin. We shouldn't, but we do. And then the path forward is not to deny that it has happened, but to acknowledge it. And as long as we don't acknowledge it, our life will not go well. And we have... Uh, we have actually the testimony of um, others who have gone before us in this regard. If sin has happened, occurred in your life, uh, what God asks you to do, acknowledge it before God. Uh, hear the words of, of David, uh, quoted from the beginning of this psalm earlier. Uh, David, uh, this is generally thought to be when he had committed his great sin in regard to adultery, uh, adultery with Bathsheba. And, you know, there was a little time there where he thought it was all covered up. It was kind of dumb. Everybody knew about it. Um, and probably even Uriah knew what happened. And we have to only speculate. But uh, he was not doing anything about it until God sent a prophet, Nathan, who confronted him on this matter. But here's what uh, David says in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then here's a selak. That's, you know, it's a musical notation of some kind, but there's a transition there. It says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Praise God. You know, this stuff about psychosomatic disorders, I think it's real. It's real. You, if when our minds are oppressed and it's under guilt and the guilt is not relieved and we are suppressing it, hiding it, it kind of comes in all kinds of other manifestations. The best thing is to take care of it. No one no one earns their way to God. All have come short. 
Even the worst of sinners is offered salvation. The man, the thief on the cross who was next to the Lord, he had no opportunity for a new life, no turning around, no, uh, no, no time left for him to do any good or pious works. Nothing of the sort. But he asks, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And our Lord's response is, today you shall be with me in paradise. Christ's sacrifice for sinners is sufficient to take care of any guilt, any guilt. Where sin abounded, increased, Romans chapter 5, grace superabounded, it abounded over it. There's no sin so great that we cannot be forgiven. If we say we have no sins, then we are deceiving ourselves and being false and shortchanging our opportunity. If you're a believer, to be reconciled and to walk again. And the thing about the Christian life is that it's like any, any, growth, any growth pattern. You know, children learn, before they learn to walk, they fall many times. Before they run, uh, they stumble many times. And so it is with the Christian life. The thing to do is if you have fallen down, get up, keep running, keep walking. Claim the forgiveness of God. Acknowledge your sin. And keep going. Don't let it hold you back. I've had times in my life, you know, this like, oh, I fell in the mud already. Let me wallow in it a little bit more. Uh, that, was not, that was not from the Lord. I didn't have to feel sorry and terrible about how I was before I could be restored. I need to know what happened to me, what was wrong. Acknowledge it to the Lord and keep going. And then I am enjoying the grace and the goodness of God. Chapter 2, verse 1, we'll conclude with this. My little children, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. So, I mean, several questions popped up over the weekend, right? Are we supposed to not sin? Well, that's what he says. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So, we should have a goal in life not to sin. First Peter chapter 2, Christ Jesus has left us an example that we should walk in his steps. And what's the first step? He did not do any sin. First step. He has left us an example that we should walk in his steps. He committed no sin. And second, there was no deceit in his mouth. It's an example for us to follow. So our calling is not to sin. If you sin, we have an advocate. COVID precautions, wear masks, sanitize your hands. Maybe you didn't do any of it and you caught it. And what's the next step? You're going to be rushed to the hospital. And it's the same with a believer. If we sin, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Then nobody should say, why didn't you wear a mask? Why didn't you take good precautions? No. Your need is to be helped. And how, that's how God sees us. We shouldn't sin. If we do sin, we should come running back to God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, because he gave his life for our sake. He gave his life for the sake of humanity to redeem us. And he did not do it grudgingly. See, I ought to live a righteous life. You know why? <laughs> because that's the right thing for me. That's a good thing for me. It's the blessing for me. My experience is better. I mean, so many cases for living righteous. I'm not doing God a favor. I mean, don't you ever think that 
living a righteous life by doing it. You are doing God a favor. You're doing yourself a favor. I'm doing myself a favor. It's the best thing to, for me. I have never any regrets about not continuing, not doing again the terrible things I have done in my life. It's always, always the happy thing to be living righteously. Do yourself a favor. But if we have fallen, then come running to the Savior. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has taken away the wrath of God directed at the violation of his standard in the universe that he has made. He has borne the full penalty of my disobedience and guilt. He is the propitiation. He has pacified the wrath of God because he endured all of that wrath in his person, on his body, when he gave his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And John says, he hasn't done it just for us. It's not just us three. There's only, there's only one Savior under heaven. For all the earth, for anyone who wants to be saved, there's only one Savior. Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews only, but for the Greeks. Anyone, all humanity. He entered into humanity. He did not. He was an Israelite, but he was not a Savior just for Israel. He is a Savior for all. He is a propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who needs salvation needs to turn to him. I sh I'm going to conclude with this. I'll read a few more verses. It repeats the same theme at the beginning. If we say we have fellowship with him, we ought to walk even as he walked. If you say you have come to know him, you ought to walk even as he walked. If you say you are in him, you should live as he lived. This is the right demonstration of our relationship to God. The evidence of my knowing Christ, the evidence of my salvation, is that I seek and live a life which imitates the example of the perfect, perfect character of my Savior. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you have never trusted Christ. You should. God is offering his kindness, his gift of forgiveness and acceptance to you. Saints, come to me. This is the best thing for you. Your eternity is going to be sealed and guaranteed by my grace. I will come into your life in the person of my spirit and change you. God is offering us eternal life in the person of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you are a believer and you're still suffering from the guilt of things in the past. Acknowledge them to, to the Lord. Come to him and say, Lord, I have sinned. Forgive me. And then you don't have to do penance. You don't have to feel awful about it for another two weeks. Confess it and be assured that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, we give you thanks for our Savior. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that Jesus died to save sinners, of which all of us can say, I am chief. Nothing in our hands we bring, 
simply to the cross we cling. We come desperate. We come bankrupt. We come needing everything which you are able to provide. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus who died in our place, paid for our guilt, and triumphed over death and promises eternity with him. We give you thanks for him. In Jesus' name, amen.